chapter of Luke. This morning, we'll be looking at a very familiar account, the healing of the paralytic man. It's an account that occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, story that I was very familiar with. And yet I trust we will see in here truths about who Jesus is. And that's really the, the question Luke is setting out for us. Who is this Jesus? And we've seen the, the miraculous birth accounts of Jesus and John the Baptist. We've had indications of what he will do. And then starting in chapter 4, we get the first declaration of who is Jesus. And it's his own self-revelation in his hometown synagogue where he opens the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he identifies himself as the Lord's anointed. He identifies himself as the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord has come. And he identifies himself as the one who's been anointed by the Lord, by his spirit, to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to captives, the recovering of sight to blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and actually not just to announce, but to actually set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the remainder of chapter 4, we see miracles that confirm this testimony. The signs, the miracles are given to verify the spiritual claim. That's always the case. The miracles aren't simply there because, hey, this would be fun. This would be exciting. Jesus did not heal everyone on planet Earth. His signs and his miracles exist to point, to confirm, to lend validity and credence to his spiritual claim. So he stands up and he says, I am the one of whom Isaiah 61 spoke. And then Luke shows us miracles confirming that. But as we started turning into chapter 5, a new secondary theme starts to arrive. Not only is Jesus the Lord's anointed, not only has he received the Spirit of God to work powerfully, but starting in chapter 5 and really all the way up until he begins the Sermon on the Plain in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, the new theme is the authority of Jesus. Okay, so you're a Messiah. Okay, so you're a prophet. Okay, so you're a teacher. With what authority? And so we've already seen Peter fall down at his feet, calling him Lord. We've seen the authority and the lordship of Jesus there. And we saw last time we were here, when Jesus cleanses the leper, that Jesus brings a healing and a cleansing that the Mosaic law could not. Jesus is greater than Moses. The, the, the covenant to which he mediates is a better covenant. The promises are better. And we see rather than Jesus becoming contaminated by leprosy, the leper becomes contaminated with Jesus' holiness, and he is cleansed against all Mosaic law expectations. Now we're going to see the issue of Jesus' authority. The text makes that clear. The pivotal sentence is verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is about the authority of Jesus. We've established he's the Messiah. We've established he's the Son of God. And what does that mean? And between here and the Sermon on the Plain, we're going to get some answers to that. Here we're going to see that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. And then as he calls Levi and he's questioned about fasting, he is the bridegroom. And, and the rules, again, are different for him because the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees, they fast. The disciples of the bridegroom, they don't fast, at least not now. And then 
chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus boldly declare that he is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord over the Sabbath. Then he's going to choose his 12 apostles. And then, this is where we're heading, in chapter 6, starting verse 20, we're going to get our first look at the extended teaching of Jesus. I don't know if you've picked up on that yet, but we've been told Jesus is doing a lot of teaching. Starting in chapter 4, verse 15, he taught in the synagogues. We get a very brief, him reading two verses, and then there's the discussion about his authority again. And then we jump down, and in verse 32, he was teaching. Verse 31 and 32, he was teaching. Chapter 4 ends with verse 44. He was preaching in the synagogues. Chapter 5 begins with a crowd pressing to hear the word of God, and he sits down in the boat, and he taught the people. I don't know if you've noticed the emphasis on teaching. Our text today begins one of those days as he was teaching. But as of yet, despite all of this teaching activity that we're told Jesus is doing, we don't really know what he's teaching. Luke's trying to build anticipation. He's trying to to get us interested so that when we finally get to our first extended teaching of Jesus, we've seen him teach here, we've seen him teach there, we've seen him teach everywhere. And then finally, we get to hear what he's teaching. But Luke is intentionally setting up his authority before we get to that, so that when we get to the Sermon on the Plain in a few weeks, we will know that he is the Lord's anointed. We will know that he is the Son of God. We will know that he is Lord of the Sabbath. We will know that he has authority to forgive sins. We will know that he is the bridegroom. And hopefully, knowing that when we come to that, we will pay attention and we will listen. So this is part of that arc, ramping things up, lifting the authority of Jesus. Let's begin by reading the text, Luke 5, 17 to 26. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, this text records two great miracles, two great miracles of our Lord. And the danger for us is to mistake which one's the great one. The danger for us is to mistake which is the important one, which is the central one, and which is secondary, auxiliary. 
So I've divided this into two sections, the greater miracle, the lesser miracle. And the important thing for us to see is the greatest miracle, the great miracle, the, the, the crucial miracle is that this man, Jesus, has the authority to forgive sins. And everything else in this passage is, is there to make that point, to bolster that point, to buttress that point. Sure, the healing of the paralytic is flashy, it's, it's attention-grabbing, it's dramatic, but Jesus makes it clear, it is the lesser miracle. So let's first dive in looking at the greater miracle, verses 17 to 20. Now here, Luke introduces for us another one of our major characters in this drama, this story of Luke. Now we have the first appearance in Luke of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law who are later called the scribes in verse 21. The teachers of the law, the scribes, are interchangeable terms. And they will make more appearances throughout chapter 5. They will be offended with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners in verses 27 through 29. In verses 33 through 39, they will actually instigate, instigate questions to Jesus. Here, they're just here watching. In, in the, the next encounter, they're actually gonna search for Jesus out and ask him, hey, why don't your disciples fast like ours and John the Baptist? In chapter six, again, they, they instigate a conflict, and in their final appearance in this first section, in, in chapter six, with the man with the withered hand, they've, they've gone, their ark is ascending as well. They, they start as observers who become offended. We'll see that in our passage today. And by the time Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, look at verse seven of chapter six. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Whatever potential impartiality they had at the beginning, it is gone. They're out to get him. And at the end of that account with the man with the withered hand, look at verse 11. They were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So they're going to go from zero to 10 there in the next chapter, the next 50 or 60 verses. This is their first appearance. And what's sad is they apparently came out with interest. We've seen how the word of God has spread. The account of Jesus has spread. Again and again we read, even our last passage reaffirmed this in verse 15, even more the report about him went abroad. Now the Pharisees are a religious sect. They're one of three that show up in the New Testament. You've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. The Pharisees were a sect that arose during the intertestamental period. That's the period of time between the closing of the Old Testament and Malachi, or if you're Italian, if you're Italian Malachi. Um, okay, that was, sorry. Um, we'll edit that out of the tape. It'll be okay. Um, Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, about 400 years take place. And during that time period, a group called the Pharisees arose. I want you to understand who they were. It's helpful to understand who they were in contrast maybe to the other groups. There's the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. You'll remember that. No, that works. The Sadducees were secularists. They only held to the inspiration of the books of Moses. They, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. So the only value that they saw for religion was for the here and now. They'd kind of like be the modern-day liberal church. They're interested in, in social 
issues, they're, issue, they're interested in social reforms and helping people and, and things that are here and now. They don't have a long-term view. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the afterlife. The scribes or the lawyers or the teachers of the law were the people who copied the text and they, they would copy the laws and the traditions. They were basically Torah lawyers. Lawyers who, if there was a dispute about what was lawful to do on the Sabbath, you'd find a scribe. You'd find a lawyer. The Pharisees were neither priests, nor were they really politically active, but they were socially concerned with bringing the people back to observe the law. The reason I want to point that out is they're probably the group closest to us. They're the ones who would want the Ten Commandments back in schools. They're the ones who would want prayer back in in the courtrooms. They, They wanted the people to observe the law. That was their desire, and to large effect, they raised powerful influence with the people. They're a very small group. After the destruction of Jerusalem, they're the only group that continued. And here they are, and they've come out. They've heard word, hey, there's a prophet, there's a teacher, he's doing great signs. And they come to see from all around, from all around. And if you can imagine you're reading this account for the first time and you don't know they're the bad guys. You might think, oh, great, now Jesus' claim is actually spreading to the highest levels in Judaism, the highest levels in their religious circle, as the Pharisees from all towns are coming to see, to see what he will do, and the scribes, the teachers of the law. And don't don't miss the other thing that Luke says here, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, this is a throwback, turn back a chapter, this is a throwback to 418. 418, Jesus identifies himself as the one of whom Isaiah 61 is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim. So he is the one whom God's spirit in power has come upon to equip him to do this mission. And we see in 414, Jesus returned in the power of the spirit. The the miraculous power of Jesus' ministry is attributed to the spirit. Now here, The miracles he's doing and the power to heal is not only a fulfillment or a confirmation that yes, he is indeed the one of whom Isaiah 61 spoke, but it's also to let us know that what we're about to see in the miracles we see, and again, we've we've talked about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, according to Philippians, emptied himself, made himself nothing. And as far as we can tell, in every way that it's possible, Jesus became like you and me, and he lived a life like you and me. And we can be tempted to think that Jesus is like Clark Kent walking around, but underneath the outward humble appearance, there's the Superman shirt. Jesus did not heal people with his own power. It says it here, it was the power of the Lord operating through him. So when we see Jesus healing, it's not because Jesus was using his own divine power. I I believe if he wanted to, he could have, but he didn't. He lived the life like us, for us, as far as I can tell, not utilizing any cheats, any, um, any leg ups that we wouldn't have access to. And so Luke makes it clear what we're about to see, the power to heal, just as he began this section with Jesus returning and the power of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So that's the setting. We've got our new, our new participants, the Pharisees and the scribes. We've got the concept that what we're about to see is a demonstration of the power of the Lord to heal. Now we get to the bold faith of the paralytic and his friend. The bold faith of the paralytic and his friend. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. 
And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Now, that's nothing new, in a sense. If you go back to chapter 4, we saw that at the end of that Sabbath day where Jesus cast the demon out of the man in the synagogue, verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them all. And so here is yet another person who's sick, another person who's injured, this time is a paralytic, and wants to come see Jesus. That's good. That's good. But I want you to notice two things about their faith. And their faith here is key. We, we know that what we're seeing here is faith because a verse or two later, Jesus is going to see their faith. Look at verse 20. When he saw their faith. So whatever we're seeing here, whatever Luke's presenting for us, is faith. So what do we learn about faith from these men. Two things, quickly. First, their faith was active. Their faith was active. These guys got up and carried their friend who knows how far. They weren't just, I believe in Jesus. They got up, they did stuff, they moved, they sought out the Lord. And it was persistent when they encountered an obstacle, they didn't say, well, we tried. Their faith was active and their faith was persistent. James tells us this in James 2.18. Some will say, I have faith apart from my works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. We know they believed. How do we know they believed? Look at what they did. Look at what they did. They, they picked up their friend, they carried him, and then because Jesus' fame is so great, because there's such a crowd, they can't even get into the building. But that's not gonna stop them, why? Because somehow they've heard the message of who Jesus is, somehow they've, they've come to believe he is the Lord's Messiah, and if the Lord's Messiah is here, one way or another, we're getting in. And they proved to be very ingeni- in, ingenious, ingenious. These guys climb up on top of the roof. Now, if you remember, you can read it in Deuteronomy, the, the, the housing that they had in that part of the world had flat roofs. They were supposed to build parapets around their roof. And so generally, the, the roofing material would just be maybe some, some, some couple of beams, some leaves, and then a layer of mud. So they start chipping through the roof. They're doing some renovation. And you can imagine this is a dramatic scene. I mean, imagine if in the middle of the Sunday morning service, because what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching, Right? He's teaching. And so he's teaching. And imagine while I'm teaching, all of a sudden you, you see a crack of sunlight showing up in the roof up there. That's odd. And, they, and some, some plaster falls down and, and gets on Dave Lample. And, you know, and, and then it just keeps getting bigger. And they see some faces pointing through. And before you know it, there's this jerry-rigged stretcher being lowered through the ceiling. And it comes down right in front of Jesus. Just, just, what we're seeing here is faith. It's, it's bold. It's active. It's persistent. And I think that's the nature of, of saving faith. It's bold. It's active. It's persistent. It holds on to Christ. It seeks him out. It, it, it re- won't take no for an answer. You think of Jacob wrestling with the angel. I won't release you till you bless me. These men are looking for Jesus, and they're not stopping because of inconveniences. They're not, they're not being turned back by difficulties. Active and persistent, and Jesus notices it. So we see the bold faith of the paralytic and his friends, but I want you to notice the equally bold declaration of our Lord. 
when he saw their faith. And there is the whole group, all of them. And the other gospels tell us there are four friends. So a group of five men, guy on the, the mat, and the four lowering through the roof. Jesus beholds all of their faith. And he turns to the man and he says this, man, your sins are forgiven you. And in the Greek, the, the form of the verb Jesus uses is, is a very specific form. It's the perfect passive verb form. And what it basically communicates is this, your sins now and moving forward are in the state of being forgiven. This isn't a temporary forgiveness that Jesus is expounding. It is an enduring forgiveness. And the, and the Greek language makes that clear. It, it's, it's basically a past event, and the effect is what we're looking at moving forward. You are in the state and will continue to be in the state of having your sins forgiven. This is a bold declaration, and it's a wonderful declaration. Because if God sent his Messiah, and he truly is the Lord, and if God sent his Messiah, and he is the Lord's anointed, and he's the Son of God, and he's the Lord of the Sabbath, but there isn't also a Lord who can forgive sins, then we are without hope. And here, Luke reveals to us not just that Jesus will play some role in forgiveness, but he actually is the one who forgives. But, but I don't want to miss the other point here. Jesus saw their faith, and he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Clearly implying, by the way, that this wasn't just the idea of his friends. This wasn't just them doing it. This isn't proxy faith. Clearly, by implication, their boldness, their activeness, their persistence is shared by him. But I want you to notice something else. Jesus gave him something better than he sought. Jesus gave him something better than he sought. Why are they bringing him to Jesus? Presumably to be healed of being paralyzed, right? That's why everyone else so far has been bringing people to Jesus to heal them. And they're, they're, they show great persistence and ingenuity, and they cut through a hole in the roof, and they lower him down. They finally get him in front of Jesus. They did it. They found the right spot in the roof. He's right before Jesus. Now, surely the teacher will do what he's done with all the others in the book. He'll lay his hands on him, and he'll heal him. And Jesus doesn't do that at all, does he? What does he do? He looks down at him and says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, we know the rest of the story, right? We know just a few more minutes, a few more moments, he'll be up and walking. But I, I, I want to just pause and recognize that that wasn't what he came there for. That wasn't what he came to Jesus fundamentally for. And Jesus did not initially give him what he asked for, did he? And in fact, we get the implication that if the Pharisees weren't grumbling, this would be the end of it. The only reason Jesus goes on to heal him is because, we're told, because he understood that the Pharisees were grumbling and questioning. So the, so the miracle of healing the man is secondary. It's not primary. And in some senses, it wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been adversaries. It's important for us to grasp because the point of all of this is he's given him something far better. Now, we can look at that and see that, right? We can understand that you know, 10 million years from now, or just even now, 2,000 years later, Jesus gave him, first and foremost, the gift that endures, the gift that matters. So what if this guy could be healed and march merrily on his way to hell? But we need to remember that 
The same thing holds true with us. We can labor in prayer with the Lord. We can, we can boldly come before him again and again on our knees just as he invites us to, just as he calls us to faithfully. And the Lord can say no. The Lord can give us things other than we ask for. And we need to remember that if the Lord says no to your request, if the Lord, you've been pleading for something, it's because he's giving you something better. Remember the words of Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Jesus says, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. And knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it is opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here's the thing. We ask the Lord for something. It may well look like a stone that he handed you. And the challenge can be, will you take a bite? Lord, I'm pretty sure I'm going to break my teeth. It's not a stone. We bite down. We trust. But I love you. That I don't give stones when my children ask for bread. I don't give them serpents when they ask for fish. And some of the greatest challenges in my life are when God doesn't give me what I ask for, trusting him. Now, Jesus knows this is, this is the better thing. But I, reading this text, reading this text, I think of at least one example in my life I just wanted to share for a moment. Because it reveals God's glory and it reveals this truth. I don't, many of you, I think, know this, but November 26, 1997, my father, Bradley F. Kidder, got in a ski accident. Um, it really wasn't as much of an accident. He was at the bottom of the hill in line, and a girl, young girl who didn't know how to ski very well kind of barreled into him. And because my dad had a pre-existing condition of ankylosing spondylitis, which basically is a very, very severe form of arthritis, his back had fused, um, he broke his neck. His C3 and his C4 vertebrae basically shattered and disintegrated. Now, he didn't know that at the time. All he knew at the time was that he had a very, very sore neck because you know, your neck muscles can, in fact, hold your neck up without the spine. This can't do it for very long. And he went to the doctors, and it was the day before Thanksgiving. Somehow, he came in towards closing time at his doctor. They missed it in the x-ray. And for a week, my father walked around with a broken neck. Very sore, until one morning he couldn't get out of bed. He was partially paralyzed. They rushed him to surgery in Dartmouth, and by the time he came out of surgery, um, he, was, he was a quadriplegic. That happened in the weeks following uh, November 26, 1997. Now, at this time, I am an unbeliever. I am a rank, miserable unbeliever. In fact, God used my father's accident in many ways to drive me to greater despair because what I saw happen over the next two years, my father lived in that state for two more years. I saw all of his money drain away with his medical expenses. I saw my family fragmenting through the strain and stress of it. And it just proved to me in one more place that there really isn't much point in life. It doesn't matter what you have. It's miserable. It's awful. And I was not a very happy person or fun person to be around. But in God's providence, he used that event in a wonderful way. Through, through partially my father's own uh, misery and his own awful condition, I was driven to despair and I was driven to seek the Lord and his word and his spirit convicted me and he drew me. And in the summer of, of 1999, I came to faith. The Lord drew me to faith. And then 
um, I became my dad's assistant, helping him as he tried to return to his law practice. And, and then uh, my mother um, renewed her faith, and, and the two of us began trying to minister to him. And my dad ended up dying uh, March 31st in 2000. We just passed a few days ago, the 15-year anniversary. And, and the Lord never healed my father. We prayed for it. It was his great hope. His spinal cord hadn't been severed. It had only been wounded and bruised, and so it was conceptually possible for him to recover. The Lord never, the Lord never restored my father's health. But what the Lord did do is mere days before my father died, brought him to faith. Um, my father was a very religious, minimal Catholic, if that makes any sense. He, he, he did not hold to all the Catholic dogmas, but he, what he did hold to, he held to with tenacity, and so he'd go to Mass every Sunday, but, but I remember talking to him when I first became a Christian, and he didn't believe, or at least he didn't have an opinion about you know, the, the Immaculate Conception or anything like that. The best way, in fact, to describe my father was a man who had his faith in a church that he thought had his faith in Jesus. And that was really what he was relying on. At the end of the day, the priest said he was good, and that's what he was, that's what he was banking on. And so, as my dad and I are studying, reading the Bible, um, we get to John 3, and I remember having a conversation with him where um, he agreed, like, so my dad was a lawyer, and so I'm thinking, man, he's just got to read this, because it's so clear, and he's got that type of mind, reasoning mind, and I got him to agree, very, very tentatively, that the scriptures had a greater authority than the Pope, and he very quickly wanted to say, only if the scripture's totally clear and, and undeniably in what it means. He said, because he understood, he'd done enough research, he knew that some of the, the, the papal edicts contradicted themselves, he knew, he knew that much. And so I quickly took him to John 3, and this must be born again bit, and, and said, okay, that, does that look necessary? Does that look uh, unarguably essential? He said, yes. I said, do you have any idea what that means? He said, no. I said, okay, let's talk. And somewhere in that study, I remember him, um, when I showed up, talking to me and saying, you know, Jeremy, um, I've given some thought, and I think you're right. I think, I think what is essential, what I need to do, is put my own personal trust in Jesus and not in the priest, not in the church. And, and literally, days later, he died. He, he went into the hospital to have a, a minor procedure, an ulcer, and because of his state, the, the stomach acid that had eaten through the, the stomach actually ended up attacking the pancreas, and and um, he, he died a couple days after that surgery. Technically, I think the name was necreatic pancreatitis, but anyway. And the cool thing is, even though my dad didn't have many days to bear fruit, as, as he knew the end was drawing near, and really, we only found it out the day he died, because they, they opened him back up to see why he wasn't getting better from the original surgery, and that's when they discovered the pancreas was no more. Um, his faith strengthened, and his, his profession of faith grew more firm, and... And so I look at that, and I read this story, and I, and I pause before Jesus goes on to heal this man because I am so thankful that the Lord gave the better gift to my dad. It would have been wonderful to see my dad walk. It would have been wonderful to see him on his feet. It is so much more wonderful that God gave him the gift of forgiveness. I'm so much more thankful for that. And it's easy on this side of things to see that. It's, it's harder in the moment, right? Because I was praying that God would heal my dad. I was praying that God would, would do something miraculous. And God did do something miraculous. He did something far, far greater than that. And so I just wanted to share that because 
there weren't any Pharisees around who were challenging the Lord when my dad became a believer, so there was no corresponding miracle. And I'm okay with that. Because in the resurrection, my father will walk and run and jump for joy. Not, not here and now. But God gave him the, the better gift. And make no mistake, God, what he doesn't give you what you're asking for is giving you something better. Okay, let's quickly move on to the lesser miracle, the lesser miracle. Immediately, the scribes and the Pharisees take offense at the implications of Jesus' claim. They take offense at the implication of Jesus' claim. Now, you've got to understand the logic of this is they're understanding the protocol of who can forgive. We live in a culture where this, this offense may not make as much sense because we just think we should forgive everybody of everything and it doesn't really matter whether they're sorry or not, just everyone's sort of forgiven and that's okay. You've got to understand the way the Jewish mind works. I want to read a brief quote from D.A. Carson quoting a book called The Sunflower about a uh, World War II prison camp survivor named Simon Weisenthal, okay? To illustrate this point and why the Jews were stumbling over the implication of Jesus' claim. Towards the end of World War II, Simon Weisenthal was in a work gang in the horrific concentration camp at Auschwitz. All of his relatives had been killed. Weisenthal did not even know that he was only weeks from being rescued by the Russians who had shortly reached the camp and free it. On this particular day, Weisenthal was pulled out of the work gang and shoved into a room where he found a young German soldier, perhaps 19 years old, severely wounded, clearly dying. The young German had asked to talk with a Jew before he died. And in particular providence of God, Weisenthal was the one who was shoved into that room with him. The dying German soldier was frankly terrified in the face of his impending death. He knew that he would shortly have to face God, and he knew something of what the Nazis had done to the Jews, and he knew some things that he himself had done to Jews, and staring into the face of eternity, the young German pleaded with Weisenthal for forgiveness, treating Weisenthal, in effect, as a representative Jew of the entire people. Weisenthal agonized over the desperate request. His reasoning, in brief, was this. Surely, only the offended party has the right to forgive. How can those who have not suffered extend forgiveness on behalf of those who have? Since most of the victims of the Nazis were killed, Weisenthal argued to himself, how can those still living extend forgiveness on behalf of the slain? There is no forgiveness for the Nazis. In that little room with the dying Nazi soldier, Weisenthal worked this all through in his mind. And then, without saying a word, he simply turned and left the room. After the war was over, Weisenthal wrote about his experience in a memorable little book titled The Sunflower on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. Many of its pages are given over to Weisenthal's internal agonizing as he weighed the request of the young Nazi soldier. He sent his work to many of the world's leading ethicists, asking them the question, was I right? Was I right to behave as I did? Well, there's a sense in which that's, that's true. You can't proxy forgive. You think of the ridiculousness of someone horribly attacked, raped, wounded a family member, and for some third party to show up and say, that's okay, I forgive you. Well, the Bible makes 
clear is that God is always the most offended party. We forget that, don't we? Because we, we mainly think of sin in its effects to other people. So we get that rape is bad because we see the damaged people. And we get that lying is bad because you know, we, we know the pain of being lied to. We don't generally think that the sins where we don't see victims are as bad, do we? Pride. Self-righteousness. Lust. Envy. We, we, what's the harm in that? If both people are consenting and happy, what's the harm in that? If, if it's just going on in my mind and I'm envious, what's the harm in that? And we forget that God is always the most offended party. In Psalm 51, David has killed a man, stolen his wife, and yet he writes, against you, only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless your judgments. God is always the most offended party. And so if you follow the logic, if God is only the most, always the most offended party, who is the only person who can forgive? God. There's only one time in the Old Testament that people are allowed to offer forgiveness, and that's on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest has gone into the Holy of Holies, when he sacrificed the, the lamb, the goat, then he can pronounce for the Lord forgiveness to the people. That's it. What Jesus does is bold, and they get the implications. And Jesus doesn't deny the implications. We get that's precisely the point. And so he responds to his detractors, and he says, why do you question in your hearts? And then he makes this reasoning. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say to rise up and walk? Now, on the one hand, it's far harder to forgive sins, Our medical doctors may someday be able to cure broken spinal columns. No professional, no doctor can forgive sins. But the big distinction between the two is one is verifiable and the other is not. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. How do we know for sure? Well, I guess you'd have to be there on judgment day when when that man stands before God. That's the only way you could know for sure, and there's really no way to do that. So what Jesus makes the point is this. He's all intent on establishing his authority to forgive sins. That's what this is all about. And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. So don't miss that. That's the issue. If you need forgiveness, and you do, you need to know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. You will not find anyone else, anywhere else, who has that authority. There's nowhere else to turn to. There's nowhere else to go. The good news is the Lord Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He uses the title, by the way, the Son of Man. We won't go into it now, but it's one of his favorite self-designations. 25 times in Luke's gospel, he uses it. They're offended at the implications of his claims. Jesus responds to his detractors. He rebukes their unspoken thoughts. The Son of Man has authority to forgive. Has authority to forgive. And then... He turns and he does the lesser miracle. Jesus turns to him and says, three commands, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, and notice Luke the doctor, this isn't a slow healing. When people nowadays claim to be faith healers, you measure them against the standard of scripture. Immediate, total Healing. This is done to confirm the greater miracle and it's immediate and it's total. Done to confirm the greater miracle, immediate and total. 
Don't mistake the greater miracle and the lesser miracle. This is the lesser miracle. Prophets of old could heal, right, in the Old Testament. No one but no one but God forgives sin. And eight billion years from now, you won't care whether you got into the resurrection with a broken leg or a stiff back or as a quadriplegic like my father. What matters is that your sins are forgiven. Conversely, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and doesn't have this forgiveness? This miracle confirms the spiritual reality. And, that, and that's the th- important thing to see with all of Jesus' miracles. They don't exist by themselves, for themselves. It's not as though Jesus just showed up because he just wanted to heal people. Because he doesn't heal everybody. There's plenty of people on planet Earth when Jesus is on Earth who stay sick, who stay suffering. They're always pointing to the spiritual reality. Jesus claims to be the one who is to proclaim the message of Isaiah 61. And then he does miracles to back that up. Jesus here claims to be the one who can forgive sins. And this miracle backs that up. What Luke wants us to realize, the issue for us to resolve, is this indeed the one who has authority to forgive sins? And if he has the authority to forgive sins, who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. Let's quickly look at the response. The people are amazed. First, the man obeys completely. Immediately, he rose just like Jesus said, rise up. He picked up his mat, just like Jesus said, and he went home, glorifying God. I'm I'm guessing I would have obeyed him too if he just healed me. Immediate healing. And then verse 26, amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe. I mean, that'd be a pretty awesome worship service, wouldn't it? You know, you see the hole in the roof and somebody gets dropped down and This is impressive. By the way, notice that last phrase. We have seen extraordinary things today. That's another link back to chapter 4, verse 21, where Jesus says, today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. We have seen extraordinary things today. So Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. That's, That's the point. The obvious implication then is if here is the one who has the authority to forgive sins, Have you come to him for forgiveness of sin? Do you have faith like these men? Do you have an active faith or do you have a passive faith? Do you have a sort of sit on the couch and I'm following Jesus in my heart faith? Or do you have a faith that actually gets you up in the morning, gets you to do things and gets you to act? Or another way of measuring this is, is what are you building your life on and what are you trusting in? Because if you want to come to Jesus, if you have a heart that wants Christ, you're not going to let anything get in your way. You're not going to let a roof and a crowd get in your way. You're going to come to him. And he doesn't turn away any who come to him. This is persistent, active, bold faith. And I just love the heart of our Lord. He sees them and he knows what they want. He knows what they're after. And he gives them something so much better. And he does the same for us. Now, I'm going to close in prayer in a moment. We were going to, there's a song scheduled, but I think I went long. So we will not sing the song that was scheduled. I'm saying that for the benefit of the worship team. But after I close in prayer, we'll move into a time of communion. So Lord God, we just thank you for being who you are, that you are the 
The God who forgives, and you have sent your son, Jesus, and he has the authority to forgive sins. Oh, Lord God, that you would move in our hearts, that you would give us the gift of faith, that we might seek him with all of our heart, soul, and might, as we know that those who seek find, and those who ask receive. And Lord, it's our desire that you would forgive our sins. And if there's any here today who have not come to the Lord Jesus in faith, Lord, draw them, bring them. Don't let them, don't let them find any excuse. Bring people to yourself, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.